0: If you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. We're going to be getting to some of those verses that we didn't have time for last week on the solution to the problems that we face in our culture. So we think about our culture, we've been looking into how everything feels different than it did just a short time ago. There's been a major cultural shift in Western civilization, Europe, Australia, Canada, America, Why? Well, according to my analysis, during the 20th century, as we've been spending a couple of weeks looking into the modernism that was responded to by J. Gresham Machen, and yet he was a minority and that most of our Christian culture gave way before the modernism of the 20th century and became a liberal branch, a liberal version of the Christian church, well, Since that time, liberalism has continued to chip away at the foundations of our culture as a God-based culture. The theistic basis of our civilization was eroded over the course of the 20th century until we finally became a secular nation. And as a secular nation... We were not able to stand on the principles of modernism that the secularists of 100 and 200 years ago had hoped would be able to be a foundation for society. But instead, once Christianity was swept away and we became a largely secular nation, then that opened up the vacuum for postmodernism to come in. And the key problem that we're dealing with when we're dealing with our culture these days is the issue of moral relativism. The idea that there is no objective morality, that there is no capital T truth, but that we all create our own truth, that we all have our own morals, and that the morals of a society can be deconstructed as society wishes and reconstructed as society wishes. And that's why things feel so different than they did just 20 years ago. Those who have grown up, in this postmodernist mindset, those who have been educated in postmodernism they're very different from the type of Americans who came out of the school system that was semi-Christian and semi-modernist. They think very differently about the world. And you see that in the media, you see it in the arts, you see it in politics, you see it everywhere in Western civilization. Now, if we thought that the modernists were destructive of Western civilization... We are going to long for the days of their brief reign once you see what postmodernism is capable of. Now all of that to prepare us for what lies ahead and to prepare us to be able to stand as Christians in this present time. I'm thinking about the next generation. I'm almost 50 years old. I've got another 20 years or so of ministry before I'll be passing off the baton to the next generation. And the next generation has to realize that the problems that you're going to be inheriting have been a long time in the making. That things fall apart quickly, but it takes a long time to destroy the foundation so that things can fall apart quickly. And that was what happened over the course of the 20th century, is that the foundations were destroyed so that once society collapses, it can collapse in a rather fast fashion. But I'm here to tell you not to be afraid of what the future holds. Don't be afraid of the collapse of civilization, if that indeed is the outcome of the postmodernist takeover. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, whether there's a return to traditional thinking or whether we go headlong into socialism and communism and all of the soul-destroying and society-destroying elements of that, I'm here to tell you as a pastor from God's Word not to worry about it, not to be afraid, but instead to recognize that God is with you and that you have a job to do in the coming years. And my job is to equip you for that, And I equip you for that by teaching you the importance of objective truth, the morality that comes from the Bible. You may not realize just how important it is, but history will bear out that Christianity, with its view of the world as being created by a good God and yet fallen because of sin, is the only way to make sense of morality. It's the only foundation upon which good and evil, an understanding of good and evil, can be built. Now, does somebody have to be a Christian in order to lead a moral life? No, they don't. But they have to have Christian basis in order to explain, in order to justify a moral life. There is no other explanation for morality. There is no other justification for morality. So somebody can just choose to be moral just because they choose to without a reason. But society without reason doesn't tend to last very long. And without a reason, people don't choose to be good very much. Now, this moral relativism that is infecting and has taken over our culture and is infecting even the church is nothing new. There's always been moral relativism in the world. Don't think that when I talk about the change in society, this is something new. It's just new in the dominant place in our culture. And this is what always happens over time. They have different warring ideas, different philosophies, and one will have the ascendancy and another one will come and take its place. And and that is common throughout history. So we shouldn't be surprised that this idea that there is no objective truth is something that we find even in the ancient world. In John chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? See, Pilate was one of those who didn't believe that there was an objective truth, an objective moral standard that he had to obey or that he would be judged by. He questioned what is the nature of truth, very much like people today are questioning what is truth. Well, you have your truth, I have my truth. Who can really say what is true truth? Is there even such a thing? It's not new. So don't think that we're dealing with something new. And our job in the world is the same as Jesus was in the world 2,000 years ago. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Remember that. Jesus said in John 18:37, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And what is Pilate's response? In the next verse, what is truth? Right? So, we here are Christians. As Christ was in the world, so are we. His mission has become our mission as he dwells in us. And we come into the world and we come and say, we're here to bear witness to the truth. And the world around us replies, what is truth? And so, I want to equip you to be a Christian to bear witness to the truth in an age where moral relativism is in the dominant position in society. Because, as we see, I'm going to remind you of this several times again today. It's the foundation of our study here. 1 Timothy 3.15. I like the New American Standard translation here better than the English Standard versions. One of the verses where I really don't like what the ESV did. It says, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Look around. This is the household of God, not the building, the people. You are the household of God. Together, we're a temple. You're a brick, I'm a brick, we all come together. And as a unity, we are God's house. He's dwelling in each one of us, but he dwells in a a powerful, special way in all of us together. This is the church of the living God. That's who we are. And we are the pillar and support of the truth. Look out into Firth. You think about Lincoln. You think about Nebraska. Think about all the small towns here around us. The businesses. The nursing homes. The jails. We are the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we are. In a world that says, what is truth? There is no such thing as truth. We're here saying, this is the truth. That's our job. So let's figure out how do we build this pillar and support of the truth in an age where everything is being deconstructed. They want to deconstruct morals. They want to deconstruct politics. They want to deconstruct the family. They want to deconstruct gender. They want to deconstruct education. They want to deconstruct everything. And sadly, many Christians are deconstructing traditional Christian beliefs. But we are not going to deconstruct. We are going to build. We are going to build up. We are going to rebuild whatever has been deconstructed and we are going to make even stronger what people are trying to deconstruct. Because progressive Christianity is all around us. Now it's a spectrum. Not every progressive Christian is as progressive as the next progressive Christian. And we have to be careful that we don't just lump everybody into one basket and say, these are the faithful people, these are the unfaithful people. There's a whole spectrum of Christians and churches out there. Some more faithful, some less faithful. Nobody's completely faithful. Our goal is to take the less faithful and make them more faithful, and to take the most faithful and make them as faithful as they can possibly be. Because we're here to do a job. And our job is to be the pillar and support of the truth. And if we keep that focus, if we keep that mission, then you will succeed no matter what happens in the culture around you. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what they do. They can tear down everything. But we're not going to let them tear down the pillar in support of the truth. This is where truth stands. This is where truth rests. We're going to be God-centered instead of man-centered. We're going to be exclusive in saying that Jesus is the only way and that other religions will not get you to God. We're going to be Pauline in our ethics and our theology. We're going to love the Apostle Paul. We're going to read and preach Paul. We love Paul. And we're going to be recognizing that as much as we are victims, the important thing is not our victim status but our guilty status before God. And we're going to preach the gospel not to victims. We're going to preach the gospel to those who are guilty sinners before God. And we are going to reconstruct biblical faith. That's how we're going to not be a part of what is called progressive Christianity, but it's not. Just because something's called progressive doesn't mean that it is progressive. And all of these things are actually regressive for the purpose and the mission that God has called us to of being the pillar in support of the truth. If we're progressing in being a better pillar in support of the truth... That's great. If we're not progressing in that, then we're failing. That's how we measure progress in the church. So, last week we talked about how progressivism is not Christianity. Now, remember the spectrum. Just because somebody has some progressive tendencies doesn't mean they're not a Christian. However, there are a lot of Christians out there who are, what I would say, fully progressive, and they are not Christians. There's a lot of false Christians in the world. Now, On the whole spectrum of faithfulness, you're going to find a lot of people with progressive tendencies. And you'll find brothers and sisters in the Lord who have progressive tendencies, and we don't want to write them off. We want to minister to them. We want to be servants to them. We want to help them. So don't use your knowledge to puff up. Don't use your knowledge to look down on the unbeliever or the believer. For the progressive Christian, they're the mission field, okay? Okay? They're not the enemy, they're the mission field. And the enemy has taken them captive to do his will through the deception and lies that he is so skillful at promulgating in the world. So keep that in mind. Something that doesn't always come across as much as I'd like in my preaching. So progressive Christianity is not Christianity, but we want to reach everybody. That's the point here. And so what are the solutions? What are we going to do to build up in a world of deconstruction? That's our goal today. Number one, you need to build your faith on the Word of God. And we have several subpoints here. This is kind of my, my main point for the sermon. That's why it comes first. And we've got several subpoints that are going to show us, what do I mean? What does the Scripture mean? When it encourages us to build our faith upon the Word of God. And the first sub-point here is you need to look for the author's intended meaning. You've got to read scripture, but you don't just read scripture, you read scripture the right way. And, well, there's a right way to read? Yeah, there's a right way to read and there's a wrong way to read. And the world, since the time that I was in college, started teaching kids the wrong way to read the book. I was an English major in college. And so in college, they taught us that the right way to read a book is not to look for the author's intended meaning, but instead to look for your response, your subjective response to the written text. That was called the reader response theory. And it is a component of postmodern deconstructionism. That the author's intended meaning is not important. What is important is how you construct your own meaning through your interactions with the text. That is not how you read a book. It's not how you read Shakespeare. It's not how you read Chaucer. It's not how you read Machen. And it's not how you read the Bible. When somebody writes a book, they do it because they want you to understand something that they're communicating. Especially when you're writing a nonfiction book. Nonfiction books are, are written to communicate ideas, objective truth. A history book isn't written so you can have whatever experience you want with the history book. It's written so that you can learn history from someone who is giving you objective truths, hopefully, about history. And so when it comes to the Word of God, it's not written just so you can have an experience with it subjective based upon your own life but it's written so that you can understand the heart and mind of God and you look for the intended meaning of the human author and you look for the intended meaning of the divine author so when you're reading a book ask yourself what is the author communicating why did he write the way that he wrote ask questions try to put yourself in the author's position That's why we do historical studies when we're looking at the Bible. You know, the Bible has so much history in it because it wants you to know something about the people who are writing the Bible so that you can get into their mind and understand from their perspective why they're writing what they're writing. Why did God give us the book of Acts? Because in the book of Acts, you learn about Peter. In the book of Acts, you learn about Paul. And why is it important to know about Peter and Paul? Because they're the ones who write the letters of the New Testament. So you've got to understand Paul if you're going to understand his letters. You've got to understand Peter if you're going to understand his letters. That is looking for the author's intended meaning. And God is very wise in how he put his Bible together so that when you want to know what did God mean when he said this, if you work, if you are earnest, if you seek for the truth, you will find. He hasn't hidden it. He doesn't always make it easy. He wants to challenge us. He wants to push us. But it's there, and we need to search for the author's meaning, not just an existentialist reading of the Bible. Last week we talked about the existentialist reading of the Bible. I was reading from Wikipedia, let me remind you. An existentialist reading of the Bible would demand that the reader recognize that they are an existing subject, that's subjectivism, I'm the subject. Studying the words more as a recollection of past events this is in contrast to looking at a collection of truths that are outside and unrelated to the reader. Now, the truth is outside the reader, but truth is never unrelated to the reader. Okay? When we're looking for truth, we're looking for how does truth relate to me. So they set up this straw man that if you're going to look for the truth outside, it's unrelated to you. Now, you look for the truth that's outside and you look for how then it relates to you. First you understand the truth, then you understand how it relates to you. It says that an existentialist reader is not obligated to follow the commandments as if an external agent is forcing these commandments upon them, but as though they are inside them and guiding them from the inside. So basically, an existentialist reads the Bible according to his own inner light, his own inner guide. The Bible says your inner light is darkness. Don't listen to your inner light. Don't follow your inner guide because you are sinful. You're twisted. You're distorted. If you follow your inner light... It's not light. You're actually following darkness. Instead, look to the light of the truth that is outside of you and try to navigate your life according to that truth and bring it to bear on yourself as a subject. So it's very important how you read the Bible. Look for the author's intended meaning. That's how you build your faith on God's Word instead of your own experiences. You don't want to build your faith on your own experiences. Another way to talk about building your faith on God's word, a second sub-point here, is... Oh, forgot about my verses. We'll get to the second point here in a moment. But notice what the Bible says about itself. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. You put all of God's word together, you add it all up, and what's it equal? Truth. That is so important. That's foundational. You've got to understand that. What is truth? There's the answer. Pilate wanted to know. The world wants to know. You talk with somebody on the street and they say, well, you know, what is truth? They'll say, well, whatever God says is truth. And they'll say, well, you know, you believe that the Bible says that that's God's word, but how do I know that the Bible is God's word? Then you get into apologetics and you get to explain to them how do we know that the Bible is God's word if they really want to know. They say, well, How can God's word be truth, and how is that any better than our word? Well, it's because God's always been there. He knows everything. And somebody who knows everything and never lies, when he speaks, what he says is true. Because he's not making a mistake. There's not some fact that God is going to learn, that is going to change his mind, be like, oh, I thought that was the truth, but then I found out this other thing, and I found out it wasn't true. And so people without God, they never have truth, because there's always a chance they're going to discover something that's going to overturn everything that they thought. We're going to discover some truth out there that's going to make all this other stuff like, oh yeah, that was all wrong. But God doesn't ever discover anything. He knows everything. So he never has to change his mind and he never has to go back and say, oh, you know that thing I said through Paul 2,000 years ago? Well, I didn't know that you know, people were going to do this and I didn't know about that and, and so you know, let's change what I said because I didn't know this other thing. But God knew. And his word is truth. And that's wonderful to be able to have. There's nothing more valuable than having the truth. Without the truth, you've got no life, you've got no hope, you've got no direction, you've got no salvation. We've got something wonderful. Don't be ashamed of it. The world's going to try to make you ashamed for thinking that you know the truth. Oh, you're a bigot. Oh, you're closed-minded. You're arrogant. You think you've got the truth and everyone else is wrong. Well, let's just start with the fact that unless we can agree together that there is such a thing as truth, And that truth can be known, then it's all hopeless anyway. Unless there is truth and that truth can be known, then what is the point of any of this? Why are we even having a conversation? It's not arrogant or narrow minded to believe that there is such a thing as truth and that truth is knowable, especially when the truth that you believe says that you didn't come to know that truth by any goodness that's in you. But it's all because of God's grace and mercy and that he wants to show that grace and mercy to others, and he appoints you to be a minister of grace and mercy to those who are lost in lies. So the sum of God's word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures until culture changes. That's the postmodernist Bible. But the Christian Bible says every one of your righteous rules endures forever. As I said, God has never changed his mind once about any moral issue ever. Another great verse in the same psalm. Psalm 119 is great. It's all about this. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And what's it about? The Bible. You know, if somebody accuses you of being a worshiper of the Bible, say, well, I'm in good company. The psalmist was a worshiper of the Bible as much as I am. And Jesus and Paul, however they viewed the Bible, that's how I want to view the Bible. All right, so you look for the author's intended meaning second thing I want you to keep in mind as you're building your faith on God's Word is that the Bible is your authority, not evangelical opinion. Okay? This is what often happens. The world goes off on its craziness, and the church is over here, and we're like, well, we don't really like all the craziness they've got over there, so we're going to have our own subculture, and we're going to talk and discuss and debate among ourselves, and, and we'll just take a, a rational, middle-ground position among our group and then we won't go all the way crazy like those guys but we'll just have our own culture and you don't want to be too extreme over here you don't want to be too extreme over there just kind of be a centrist whatever evangelical culture is find the middle ground and that's safe don't do that that's a bad idea let me explain what often people do and let me go a little bit further on this is they'll talk about how you know there's a ditch on this side of the road and there's a ditch on this side of the road and the truth is in the middle And you know what? That's often true. I use that all the time myself. I'll say, well, here's the error on this side, and here's the error on that side, and and here's what the Bible says. But notice the difference there. The centrist says, well, here's what the extremists over here say, and here's what the extremists over here say, so we're going to take the middle ground. You don't take the middle ground. No, here's what the Bible says. That's the difference. The Bible says this, and... There's always two ways to go off the path. You can go off the left or on to the right. Your goal is to stay on the path. The path is not what is the middle ground of all the different evangelical opinions. That's not the path. The path is what does the Bible say? That is the only safe path. That's the only safe ground. Now, you'll be safe among evangelicals, your culture, your subculture, if you take the centrist position. But that's fearing man. I don't want to be thought extreme over here. I don't want to be thought extreme over there. I want to fit in with my subculture. And Christians think they're being godly by fearing man in the Christian subculture instead of fearing man in the secular culture. You don't fear man at all. You don't fear man in the church. You don't fear man outside of the church. You fear God. And you say, God, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to believe. Now, people call this biblicism, they think it's foolish. I call it sola scriptura. And I think that it has proven itself throughout Scripture, proven itself throughout church history, and I think that it will prove itself for eternity. That when you stand before God and you say, God, I just did my best to believe what you said. and I wasn't always in step with my culture. I wasn't always in step with my Christian subculture. But I just tried to believe what you said. I think that's a safe position because I fear God. You know, I had a great quote that came on Twitter the other week. One guy posted a quote from Chrysostom. And he said, if you knew how quickly everyone would forget about you after you died, you'd live for God and not for man. As I get older, I start thinking, yeah. I don't know much about my great-great-grandpa. Couldn't tell you his name. But God knows. So, Don't take the evangelical middle path. Stick to what Scripture says. Now, postmodernists, they always like to take the centrist path because they are Hegelian in their thinking. Let me explain a little bit about the thinking that is driving the world that we live in. Philosophy drives actions. If you understand the underlying philosophy, then you understand the actions that you see from people around you. See, Hegel... He believed that no single statement can get at reality, that our understanding of truth is always evolving. And so how he understood it was as an evolutionary construct, that just as life evolves, so ideas evolve also. And the way that life evolves is by the survival of the fittest. And you have clash, and whatever survives the clash, that is what then continues and moves forward. And so there's this progress in life through evolution. And there's this progress in ideas also through an evolutionary concept of competing ideas. So Hegel said there's, there's a thesis, which is your accepted idea in society, and it's challenged by another idea called the antithesis. And the thesis and the antithesis, they battle each other in culture, philosophers debating, and then what comes out of that is a new synthesis. And that new synthesis then becomes the thesis, It takes elements of both and uh, the bad things fall away and the new things merge together and this is an evolution of ideas through this battle of ideas. That's Hegelian thinking. And so the centrist, he doesn't want to be involved too much in the battle. He kind of wants these guys to battle it out and those guys to battle it out and then whatever is left, whatever is good, whatever comes together, that's his position, that's his synthesis position. And so that is what is driving the evolution of ideas in our culture. And that's why people talk about things like, you're on the wrong side of history if you believe that homosexuality is wrong. That that's an old idea that has been left behind as we've evolved our societal consciousness through discussion, debate, You're just like not even in the mainstream of society. You're like living like it was 300 years ago because society has evolved. We've moved past that. You're on the wrong side of history. This is because of this Hegelian dialectic. It's how they understand truth. It's how they understand meaning. And it's very different from the Christian understanding. Now this same thing is brought over into the church, in the progressive church. And so we want to be biblicists. We want to believe in sola scriptura, that the Bible is the ultimate authority, that God's word is truth, and that it doesn't change, it doesn't evolve. Very important to avoid centrism. You will be tempted to centrism because it feels safe, because it feels comfortable, because people approve of you. Don't seek after the approval of people. Love people, serve people, But don't seek their approval. There's a big difference between loving someone and seeking their approval. Seeking the approval of people is really loving yourself, because it feels good to be approved of. But when you love people, you're willing to confront them and tell them that they're wrong, even if they don't like you for it, because you're not concerned about them liking you, you're concerned about what's best for them. That's genuine love. So we don't want to move with the culture. You know, during the pandemic, a lot of pastors were complaining about how hard it is to be a pastor. They say, you know, if I do this, I get shot up by these guys. And if I do that, I get shot up by these guys. And it's just so hard to be a pastor. And I say to those guys, good riddance. You know, if it's hard to be a pastor because you're trying to please man, find a different job. But no matter what I do, I'm going to upset somebody. Right. So do what God says. If you have enemies on both sides, it doesn't mean that you are standing for Jesus. A lot of Christians make that mistake. They say, well, I got old people over here that are against me, and I got people over there that are against me, so that must mean that I'm right. No, that doesn't mean you're right. You're right if you agree with what this says. If you're being criticized, it's not because you're right, it's because you're doing something. Not because you're wrong, not because you're right. It just means you're doing something. Anytime you teach something, anytime you stand up and assert something, you're going to be offending these people or those people. That's not your standard. You're not trying to be in the middle. You're trying to be standing on God's word. Even when God's word is extreme in the eyes of your Christian subculture. I will be extreme if God's word is extreme. I will be middle if God's word is middle, I'll be on the left if God's word is on the left. I'll be on the right if God's word is on the right. I will be wherever you can show me God's word is. Because I love God and I fear God, I believe Him. So, third element here you've got to look for the author's meaning. Don't just look for your own experience of God's word. You've got to avoid the temptation to please man and instead just stand wherever Scripture stands. And third, oh, well, I forgot my verse again. Practice, Timothy. So this Hegelian dialectic of the evolution of ideas, you know, we're progressing as Christians and we're making progress and those old ideas are old ideas left in the past. Well, this is what Paul talked about. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. All the way back in the days of Timothy, that these false teachers are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. You know, if you talk with somebody and they proclaim to be a Christian, they proclaim to be a Christian influencer or leader or teacher or whatever, and they say, well, I'm always you know, evolving my opinion, I'm always learning, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, and I'm just on my journey, and I'm a seeker, and all that type of language, run the other way. I'm not saying I know everything, but what I do know, I know. And God is clear. And I don't have to be mamby-pamby about it. I don't have to say I apologize for it or my view is changing or my view is open to change. If God's word has said it, you stand on it with courage and strength and you don't float with the culture and put your finger up in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. You've got to get to a point where you know the truth and you believe the truth and you're not questioning it anymore. You know, I've got to get mad at myself sometimes. It's like, Timothy, why are you questioning this again? You've questioned it ten times. You've looked into it ten times. You know what the truth is. Just stop it. Just believe it. So, look for the author's intended meaning and don't be a centrist. But instead, you read the Bible for ethical instruction. This is key. When you come to the Bible, it's like the Bible is up here and you're down here. Now, I can't read it like this, but I'm holding it up to show that it's the authority that is over me. That I read the Bible for instruction. Say, God, teach me. Who is the one that God looks to? God looks to the one who trembles at his word. And to tremble at the word of God means that you hold it in such high regard that you have such respect for it that you place yourself underneath its authority. The authority of Scripture is, is an essential doctrine for the health of the church in the 21st century, in all centuries, but especially when you've got progressive church all around us. So what do I mean by reading the Bible for ethical instruction? But well, As I explained, woke church, as it's called, is the accommodation of Christianity to postmodern and neo-Marxist ethics. The ethics of the world are changing, we feel like we're getting pressured and squeezed to change, so we try to find ways to accommodate the Bible. Well, you talk about you know, concern for the poor and your socialism, and you know the Bible is very concerned about the poor, so there you go. We've got common ground there, and we can talk about that. I'm not saying we can't talk with socialists about the Bible's concern for the poor. I'm just saying we can't adopt their ethic about how to care for the poor, right? And so when you're building a biblical ethic, you've got to construct and reconstruct a biblical ethic as the world has twisted and turned the ethics of the Bible upside down. Here's where you start. When you're reading the Bible for ethical instruction, you start in the Old Testament. Not enough Christians read the Old Testament. That makes us very susceptible to postmodernism. Jesus says, love your neighbor. Many Christians run around thinking that they're loving their neighbor. But they're not doing so according to the ethics of Jesus, according to the ethics of the Old Testament that he believed, that he taught, that he affirmed, but according to the ethics of our culture, which is very different in a lot of respects. So you've got to go back and you've got to read the Old Testament for ethical instruction. You've got to say, I'm not the ethical authority. My church is not the ethical authority. My evangelical culture is not the ethical authority. The media is not the ethical authority. The public schools are not the ethical authority. God's word is teaching what is right and what is wrong, and I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to tremble before God's word. That's how you read your Bible. So read the Old Testament with the goal of agreeing with God on what is right and what is wrong. I want to write that down. Read my Old Testament with the goal of agreeing with God on what is right and what is wrong. This is how the church is going to be kept safe. This is how the church is going to be the pillar and support of the truth in the 21st century. And you know what? Most Christians aren't going to do it. And so most churches aren't going to be the pillar and support of the truth. But if they will, if a church, a pastor, a Christian will do what I'm saying here, if you'll read the Bible for ethical instruction then you'll probably be a pillar in support of the truth in the 21st century. You got your Bible open in 1 Timothy, look at chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good. Do you know that the law is good? Most Christians out there know that the law is good. You pick out 10 verses from the law and you show it to them, they're going to say, well, that's good. A lot of them are going to say, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) Because they've got the ethical thinking of the world from their public education and from their television shows and from their movies and from their comic books and from their video games. Their ethics are all turned around. They come to the Bible and they're like, oh, that's bad. Well, is it? How do you know? Well, I feel it. I think it. Well, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. There have been many cultures, many places where people thought that what they were doing was good and they had it all backwards. And you think that this culture is different? You think that we as 21st century Americans are better than the 20th century Germans? Or the 4th century Romans? How do you know what's good? By what standard? It's always the question to ask the postmodernists. By what standard? We have a standard. Read it. Believe it. Know it. God has spoken. Who's listening? Are you? Don't worry about what people out there are doing. How about you? Your kids, your grandkids. Are they reading it? Do they believe it? If not, they won't stand. This is where Satan gets you. It's on ethics. That's the battleground right now. What does it say? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. That's not even politically correct to call anyone an ungodly or a sinner. And let's just start right there, Paul. For those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral. Who are you to judge what's sexually immoral? Men who practice homosexuality. Oh, there's a lot of homophobia. Enslavers, liars, perjurers. You, know, you thought we could agree that enslavers were bad, but then the media attacks movies that are going after the child enslavers. Liars, perjurers. Notice how it ends. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. See, I don't just teach you doctrine of trinity and election and post-millennialism or pre-millennialism. It's all important stuff. But a lot of the doctrine is ethics. Ethical teaching. That's sound doctrine and it comes from the law, the Old Testament law, in accordance with the gospel. See, the gospel is in accordance with the doctrine of ethics that is taught in the law. Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law of the prophets. There's not one jot or tittle from the law that is going to pass away until all is accomplished. And Jesus taught the ethics of the Old Testament perfectly. Perfectly. You can't say you're a follower of Jesus if you don't believe Moses and what he taught about what's right and what's wrong because Jesus did. That's why biblical ethics is a gospel issue. You know, A lot of churches talk about gospel issues this day. This is a gospel issue. That's a gospel issue. Justice is a gospel issue. And I agree with you. Justice is a gospel issue. Not that you can't be saved and be confused about justice issues. But your view of ethics is vitally connected to a proper understanding and growth in the gospel. Because Paul says that the law, as it teaches about what is ungodly and what is holy and what is profane, and as it condemns sexual immorality and homosexuality, that this is in accordance with the gospel. And as you read through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, This is his major thrust. This is his major emphasis. As the churches have been established, as the gospel has been preached, as they are being established and built up in the faith, what Paul wants the churches to know is that ethical living is essential to a healthy church and accomplishing our mission. If the church gives up its ethics and adopts worldly ethics, it will cease to be the church. Just a matter of time. You can't budge on these ethical issues and maintain Christianity over the long run. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 makes this same point. Paul identifies himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Is he an apostle of Jesus Christ? Are his words the words and the message of Jesus Christ? Is his ethical teaching the ethical teaching of Jesus Christ? Never have an elder who doesn't believe that in this church never have a pastor in this church who does not believe that the words of paul are the words of christ whenever you have a pastor and elder start to make a distinction well jesus says this but paul says that and they try to make a wedge and a distinction between paul and jesus get him out notice what he says he's an apostle and a servant for the sake of the faith of god's elect i'm here for the sake of your faith That's what's precious. That's what's valuable. That's what God is building in this world, your faith. That's my job as a shepherd, to protect your faith, to exhort you so that your faith remains sound. It remains biblical. It remains based on God's word. The faith of God's elect and their knowledge of what? The truth. And the truth accords with godliness. The truth accords with godliness. You take out godliness, you let the ungodly into the church, And it will undermine the truth. Without ethics, orthodoxy won't stand. That's what is being done in the church right now, all around us. We have to build our ethics on the Bible. We have a statement on biblical separation as our church. And in that statement on separation, we define what an apostate Christian organization is according to the New Testament. An apostate Christian organization is one in which any of the following statements are true. They deny the person or work of Christ and their official written or spoken teachings. They preach a different method of receiving the gospel of Christ other than by faith alone. And number three, this is one that's often forgotten, but it's important here. They affirm or promote an ungodly lifestyle as acceptable for followers of Christ. That's not our church's definition that is our church's understanding to the best of our ability of what the New Testament teaches. Because it's kind of important that we be able to identify what is apostate and what is not apostate. What is Christian and what is not Christian. And the scriptures drive this point home throughout the New Testament. Matthew chapter seven, Second Timothy chapter two, Second Peter chapter 2, which was our scripture reading. Jude chapter 4, Revelation chapter 2. The ethics, the teaching on what is right and wrong is the mark of an apostate. If they disagree with what the Bible says on ethics, it's a sign of apostasy. One more verse here on the importance of ethics in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. Ephesians 5, 3 through 10. The doctrine of the church is in the first three chapters. Awesome, important, ecclesiology, The ethics of the church. What is the church supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? What's right and what's wrong? That's in chapters 4 through 6. Especially here in chapter 5. Notice how Paul says in verses 3 through 10. It's not Paul. Remember, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I didn't say it. I'm just reading the scripture. I don't even have to explain it because it's so clear. It's so plain. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. That's why it's in our doctrinal statement on separation. We're not going to become partakers with so-called Christians who are sexually immoral or impure or covetous and who have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. We're just obeying Jesus, his words through his apostles. We're going to be faithful, even if it's thought to be extreme. We're going to stand on God's word because it's the only safe place to stand and because we love him.